If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. And this is Aaron. This is a special episode. This is the first one that we are doing that we are actually showing our face because this is a training. So today we're going to be talking about addressing collective trauma and police brutality in the workplace. And just so that you know, this is an anti-racist, Black affirming, Black liberation and uplifting training. So the first thing I want to say before we get into this, though, Erin, um, I don't know, you've probably been online and I know you've been online, we've been talking, <laughs> but you've been online, you've been seeing... Um, behavior analyst um, reacting to what's happening right now, reacting to each other, our verbal behavior um, in terms of tacting the events that's occurring um, in the larger world. We're here. And as Erin mentioned, we have a variety of things going on in the Do Better movement, but we do have a podcast called the Do Better Podcast. And I'm a behavior analyst who lives in Florida, St. Petersburg, with my husband and my son. He's almost four. And I've mostly focused for the past few years on providing dissemination efforts to help improve the practice of behavior analysts in the United States, but also globally by creating free professional development activities and webinars, um, just interactive Facebook posts and things like that. And I have a lot of different jobs, so I won't go into all of those, but that's my, my main passion. I'm honest. I don't even know what you do. Like, that's how cool it is. is all these different things. <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah. There's almost a, you have to have a flow chart to de- to find out like what she does. Like she has so many jobs and <laughs> always busy. Yeah. So, I just saw the international Thing that you joined. I guess we can talk about that a little later as well. But I sure. was like, oh, okay, Dr. Miller, <laughs> you definitely um, have been disseminated into the field a lot and you have such a, a broad and large reach. So we're glad to have you here. Thank you. And we've got Joe too. Why don't you tell us about yourself, Joe? All right. Thanks for having us. Um, so my name's Joe, of course, and I'm a special education teacher here in Virginia Beach for our for a regional public day school. And I'm also a clinical supervisor for navigation behavioral consulting here in Virginia Beach. I live here with my wife and my boy Blue, who is a two-year-old Irish wolfhound. Those are like really big dogs, right? Um, Yeah, he's humongous. Um, (sighs) It's really difficult to um, withhold attention from him when he's 70 pounds and laying on top of you. Uh, Oh yeah. I can only imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I can handle that. Oh, wow. Um, Cool. I didn't realize you were in Virginia beach. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'm originally from uh, Pennsylvania near Altoona, uh, which is near Penn state university. Um, but I moved down here right after college in search of a special education uh, teacher position. And I've been here ever since. Okay, cool. Uh, what, like, just so I know, I, I was a special education teacher for, for a little bit. What, like, what, 
I don't know. Is it, are, are you, do, do you do like a self-contained classroom or what's that look like? So I teach second and third graders um, this year. I'm in a self-contained uh, classroom, but what's really different about my classroom is all the students who come to us have an IEP and have been, um, their LRE is a much more restrictive environment than the regular public school setting. Um, so think of like a regular public school with their self-contained. Well, it's more restrictive than that. Okay. So, yeah. So it's um, highly individualized. And um, I have graduate coursework in trauma. I My background is a mental health counseling. I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. I've been trained in trauma-focused CBT certificate. I know if you're a behavior analyst, you're like CBT. Yes, CBT. <laughs> um, obviously, I have my own personal data to tell me or inform my own life, anecdotal data. My lived experience is an experience that can be measured. Um, I'm a business owner and I have studied and taught social justice anti-oppression framework for over 13 years now. And I read a lot of those books that I gave you. So I'm and I have a grounding in movement work. Um, and I've also talked on our podcast about other groups that I rally with and that I organize with. So Gathering for Justice and Justice League and YIC are, is my um, activist home. So that's a little bit about me. And just going back to, I guess, the work, I feel like I've already been rambling for a bit, but. No, but one thing <laughs> I want to say is like, if you're talking about dissemination and we're talking about like scope of competence, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just, you just crushed it for real. <laughs> um, and I know you've talked about like merging those two worlds for so long and how they've been so separate. Um, and I just, I don't know when you talked about putting this training, it's just, it seems like you listed off. I was like, are you going to bring somebody on to talk about this? And you're like, no, like I'm going to do this. I have this and this. And then the text message, it was just, it was beautiful. So I don't know. It's just, uh, I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just so y'all know, uh, Aaron's going to be running our slideshow for us today. So if I say move to the next one, just keep up with us. But um, yeah, you can go ahead and move to the next one. <laughs> the next Sorry, slide. I kind of like jumped the gun. You started talking about books and I was like, oh, I know the next slide is books. But yeah, no problem. So um, these are a few books. Um, or Sorry, a few reading lists. So behavior analysts, start here, please. Um, Ibram Kendi created this full reading list, an anti-racist reading list. Um, Bria Baker, which she's been on the show before. Um, she had a two-part series on our show. She's with the, she was with the Women's March. She's with Justice League NYC with me. That's my sister in the movement. Um, she also is with I don't want to butcher all of her affiliations because she, she does a lot of work. Bria is the epitome of a social justice activist. And I'm so, you know, just grateful to be in the movement with her. So she's been on the show before, two-part series, and she's actually coming back for a special episode next week. So look out for her um, episode and also go to her reading list. Um, it was covered by Elle Magazine, Elle USA. So 20 Essential Black History Anti-Racist Reading List is hers. Um, Sarah Sophie Flicker and Alyssa Klein are two members of the Women's March. Um, I saw this shared um, on our um, Facebook page. So bit.ly backslash anti-racist resources. Bit.ly is not capitalized. So um, they are case sensitive. So make sure that you put that in there, right? And then also Beautiful Humans podcast, which you are listening to this from our podcast. We're compiling a behavior analytic reading list as well for behavior analysts who want to consult the research that has been done, the research that we've talked about on this show and the research that we have yet to even talk about on this show. So um, look out for that as well. And I do want to add one thing because again, given the current circumstances and um, I don't know, being online and reading things, just because you go read um, uh, how to be an anti-racist and you still feel lost in terms of, I don't know what to do that's because you haven't read enough. <laughs> I still feel lost and that's okay. You know, it is a process. You can't read one how-to guide, how to be an anti-racist and think that you are now like on the other side and you can go be a one, like an activist like that. So I, I don't know, again, 
Mm-hmm. Go look at these reading lists. I think that that's, that, that's it. Yeah. And one thing I, I want to say is that, yeah, you could read a book and go be an activist, but how are you going to be an activist? You're going to probably show up and listen, right? And be guided by the people who have come before you and have done the work. Um, so you can, you can activate, but you also need to respect the space and learn from others. So, um, but that's definitely a great point is, you know, we're, there's so many components to this. This is 400 years in the making. Mm -hmm. You're not going to solve it by reading one book. We've said it before. Like if, if we could have, if it was so easy to solve, we would have done it already. Right. Yes. Behavior analysts. I want to remind us. You're not the first smart person to exist in this world. So, you know, we have to get connected. We have to get grounded with ideology and and help in that way. Like, yes, we have tools, but we also have ears to listen and and people have been guiding this work. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. On these reading lists, because I've looked at them, but I don't have them memorized. Is there anything that... um, is specific to like critical race theory. I know it's like embedded within this, but any like sp- specific book. Um, so you want to talk about race, I think is embedded with critical race theory. Um, and I couldn't tell you all of the books, but like some of them even are, so let's say Ibram Kendi has, so their eyes are watching God. That's not going to be a how-to book for you. Like that's going to be a book that you start to like see some of the nuances between black life. And so that's important too. For those who only rally for black lives when it's black trauma, that's a problem. If you can't rally for me and my joy and respect my experience as a full living person on this earth, that's a problem. So like, I think it's important for us to see that we don't live our life in just that dichotomy. Like there's so many different sectors that comes with the black experience. And so if there's going to be critical race theory type stuff, there's going to be other theories, but then there's also going to be that connection with black life. Right. Cause it's so much more I, expansive than, than the trauma. Right. And that's what I keep saying to people is like, you know, this is great. All well and good. Like, let you know, all of the movement right now, what are you going to do when that fades and that dies down? And it's not just around the hard times. It's not when some tra- tragedy occurs like this. It's, um, it's, it's the flip side. Of, it's the whole, like you're saying, the whole complete person is what are you doing to uplift them on a daily basis? Exactly. Know? And so I, I said this um, before, not on this show, but I'm going to say it here now. Like, honestly, if you, if moments like this cause you to see how someone thinks about black people or black experiences you already know mostly this is those allies folks that are not black that call themselves allies. i need to know who you are before you see an experience like this because i don't want to have to look for your silence and say well why aren't you saying anything and then make that be an indicator that we're not friends i also don't want to have to look for that moment for you to finally acknowledge what I've been saying myself. It shouldn't take that for you to recognize that we've had enough. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't take a moment that the whole world has erupted for you to finally look at yourself and say, how have I contributed to this? I am glad when these moments come and more people are awakened to this. But if you've been around Black bodies, you have no excuse. None to not have tapped into that. So I'm not going to spend too much time there, but I'm just going to say that blanketly. Um, If you've listened to this podcast, you know that we speak radical truth and sometimes that truth doesn't feel good. And we come from a perspective of acceptance and commitment. And sometimes you have to be able to sit with these feelings that you have about yourself, these feelings of shame that come up. And I'm not going to shame you and call you a terrible person for it, but I am going to call that out. I'm going to call that behavior out of you being complicit in the system. So this training also was not created for white allies or white accomplices. This is a black affirming space. However, I do realize that our 
field is predominantly white. There are a lot of white people that are listening to this episode. So I do want to make sure that the information that's imparted is useful for anyone. Um, But the purpose of our work has been for marginalized groups, oppressed voices, and that's what we really up with in this space. It's beautiful. No, and what I I was going to say is you're saying about like being silent. If your inclination right now is to turn this podcast off and this episode off, like that is your privilege and your ability to opt out. Um, And that's part of what we're talking about. So um, the uncomfortable space of some of these things are hard and um, then you probably need to keep listening. Right. Yeah. Erin, I just realized that you did not introduce yourself and I'm sorry. So no, but that's the thing. Like that you have taught me so much is like, there are times when you just need to shut up and listen and do what somebody's telling you to do. Like that is, that is my role right now. I don't have, um, all the experience, all that you do. This is not, um, I don't know. My job right now is just to shut up. All right. (laughs) <laughs> is that good? Can I do that? People know me. If they're like, you can go to other podcasts and you can read the bios on the, you know, Facebook page, all that stuff. This is, this is, this is your time. <laughs> yep. All right, bet. Roll it to the next one then. All right. So, like I said, this is a CE event. So, if you are listening to this every once in a while, I will say what the first buzzword is. If you are a Patreon meaning that you support our, our um, podcasts by subscribing um, to our Patreon account, which is www.patreon.com backslash beautiful humans. If you are a subscriber, then you can get a CE for this episode. Um, and so here are the things that we're going to talk about today. We're obviously talking about trauma um, and we're coming from a Black affirming lens and a Black perspective. So we're going to identify the difference between trauma racial trauma and collective trauma. We're also going to identify racial and collective trauma responses. Um, And we're going to brainstorm how to address issues in the workplace that affirm the experiences of Black people. And so when we got started, I said that today comes on the, the back of or on the shoulders of what's happening in the world right now. And so making sure to make that known that this presentation has been made for me and my community who all know this feeling too well, who've been here before. Um, And so, but we know what it's like to show up to the workplace as black and tired, black and angry, black and scared, black and frustrated, black and numb. All the feelings that come with seeing the trauma and the pain that we experience from our siblings who are brutally murdered by police, who are abused by police. And so that's what this presentation is for. So, you know, we talked about it earlier. George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. Um, And so in Minnesota, they have been using people power. That is the power of their protests to show us what, um, how they feel. And so um, you can move to the next one. All right. So before we get started, I want us to take a moment to think. Um, With this last instant of the tragic event, like this uh, brutal police murder or other state-sanctioned violence on Black individuals, consider what was it like for you at work? that same day or the following day that you got the news? Did anyone speak about it? Or did business continue as usual? If you're an agency owner or a business owner, I want you to consider what was your response to the tragic event that occurred? If you're an employee, consider what was your agency's response? Was there anything? Did your colleagues say anything to you? Did you say anything to your colleagues? And so once you've thought about your agency's reaction or your reaction, I want you to think about a shock and a tragic event like Sandy Hook, 9-11, Las Vegas. Think about COVID-19. Is there any difference in how your workplace showed up 
or responded to an event like Sandy Hook or 9 11 classwork, but then it was also interwoven inside of uh, the rest of our coursework because it's part of the ethical code. And it's part of the ethical code in a way that's very different than our current code, right? Um, it talks about justice. It talks about advocacy for groups that are um, considered marginalized. Um, and so, you know, we all were reading about the authors. If you're in counseling, you know who Sue is. Like he, that um, particular author, he... Um, did a lot of work in diversity. The thing about also with counseling is you get information that you apply. And so some of it, um, you know, Megan, when she was here, she talked about like um, moving forward with like stereotypes and stuff, but um, not all of that is going to be quote unquote stereotypical. Some of that is data. Some of that is feedback that's been given by the groups and listening to folks uh, and being able to understand how you build rapport with certain individuals and still knowing that context changes, right? That's what we know as individuals. Um, but having just that overall information about um, this could be useful for me in, in terms of working um, with specific cultures or just being able to tune in to the differences, at least we we had all of those classes. Um, but in terms of behavior analysis, no, um, I won't say that my ethics course covered it too much. Um, and I'll just say that um, I don't think it covered it too much, but probably because currently um, our ethical code doesn't cover it too much, right? There's a discrimination clause, essentially, and that's pretty much it. So I don't think that we spent much time talking about working with different groups at all. Yeah, mine was similar to that. Um, my master's was in a lot of special education. And so it was like similar to what you were saying, Megan, where they say, hey, this exists. Then they just like left it and walked away. It was just like, be aware of this. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to do with that. Um, and then I don't even remember. I think I remember touching on ethics in the coursework, but that was about it. And then it was not a big focus of the coursework at all. So I definitely, um, you know, if we're talking about doing better, um, <laughs> you know, I think there's a, a lack of training and, and instruction that kind of comes with with all of that. Would you all agree? Yes. I was curious about, do you, did you all ever feel like whether it was your training in graduate school or just people you would interact with at conferences or maybe supervision, that it's almost the opposite where it's just sort of this, you're a behavior analyst, you're a scientist, you don't need to know about those things and that's not part of your job? Yeah, um, I'm reminded of the quote, uh, Hayes and Taramino, if, you know, behavioral principles are generally applicable, then why do we need to concern ourselves with culture? And that's a loose, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like, I, I, I've, I feel like I've seen that um, with the way that people interact and uh, different cultural variables that are shut out because everyone's just like, I mean, behavior is behavior and everyone does it. And I can put that under the microscope and change it. Um, and it, and we kind of just stop there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why the, the conversation around context is so important. Like behavior mm -hmm. within context mm -hmm. is absolutely critical. Um, you know, if we think about the way our ethics code is written, it's written for a certain group of people in the United States, right? It doesn't talk about anything else. And I, I, I actually teach an ethics class right now, and I was having a conversation with them talking about, um, you know, there's the, the element that talks about least restrictive procedures. And in our country, what is least restrictive might be very different. It what is least restrictive in another culture. And, and that's not for us to dictate if that's right or wrong for them. And so how do we build in flexibility within that? And there's a lot of language that I think is, um, is missing when it comes to that. So yeah. I don't know. Can I just say, and we've said it probably before, but this is where we as behavior analysts can really just stop um, and listen to other other fields and other folks who have kind of told us this information. Going back, my own learning history, my bias is telling me that counselors have had this information for a while. And I know we don't, you know, we hear mental health and we're like, ah, oh, mentalism, don't know about it. But that information, like um, even what you just brought up, Erin, that's there and it's been written and talked about and discussed for clinicians for years. Um, and so, uh, you know, as behaviorists, we can 
allow ourselves to kind of listen to the folks who have come before us, essentially, and did the work in that area, because we have not done it as a field, unfortunately. Right. (laughs) There's not even anything to follow up with that, like, (laughs) mic drop right there. Um, So, like, in what context would, like, some of the social justice training and Real fast, um, Denisha, can you give us like, and for the listeners too, just when we talk about principles of social justice, can you just give an explanation as to what, like, we're we're talking about, and that just a refresher too? Uh, yeah. So, principles and social justice is kind of just an overarching term, but what I mean by that essentially are just the tenets that are surrounding like what we know as a just society, which is equity, um, what else is going to encourage social justice, recognizing privilege, understanding oppression, how that shows up in every space that you enter. Um, I would suggest for the listeners who um, are not sure about, you know, what these things that I just said, oppression, privilege, um, justice, diversity, any of those things are just to go back to our first show, which was all the terms. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but when we say social justice principles, we're just talking about all those um all those things that are interwoven within what makes this society just. Right. Perfect. So when we talk about that, I guess in thinking about how we can do better, in what context would we think about those social justice principles and training? Like how would that be useful for students um, and like new behavior analysts or even like current, like established behavior analysts, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I think that in our field, things have progressed. You know, like I said, when I first started, there wasn't requirements in terms of supervision or ethics for CEs or coursework. So wouldn't it be nice if we could get this expanded as well, where the training programs, you know, working with ABAI now that they oversee the VCS and it is ABAI international, right? Applied. <laughs> so an international community. Uh, so we're, you know, having stakeholders work with them or other groups to create and expand our task list and requirements. I think that's obviously one of the big first steps and, you know, that's not going to happen overnight. So in the meantime, the work that you all are doing with the podcast and the different webinars and trainings and things like that, and there's other people doing similar activities, encouraging and motivating uh, whether it's people that have already been in the field or if it's students, trainees that are learning that they could start getting this from the beginning. But one of the things I was thinking about when I listened to your first podcast was um, I think you were both talking about different examples of how you would like to be more active, like in the activist role um, with social justice and things like that outside of working, you know, as a behavior analyst and how we could motivate behavior analysts to do that and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if the first step is just getting it in our field, period, (laughs) you know, getting, getting the recognition of the value of you will be a better behavior analyst and a better practitioner and get better outcomes. If you have received training on these different areas, even for myself, I've learned so much and I haven't done as much formal work as either of you or Megan Kirby and some of the other people involved in these areas, just being in the the confessions group and watching different ways of interacting in a more like humble, compassionate way has helped me a lot. Um, and, and I think that that's really important to be able to v- understand the value that it brings to us in our day-to-day work first. <laughs> I mean, it's great if we can get it into other like mainstream and take what we know as behavior analysts and social justice. But first we need to get behavior analysts to value social justice. And how do we do that? I don't necessarily have the answer besides continuing to disseminate information about it. <laughs> Denisha, you look like you have something to say. <laughs> no, I just was reminded about my quote. <laughs> that I say. It's like, you know, there has to be some personal responsibility for sure. And then we take that and tack that on to our um, field. And then hopefully later it gets to the larger, but we definitely have some personal work to do. I don't think that we can move the field forward if we're not even just understanding how this is showing up for ourselves. But of course, we still continue to put forth the work 
anyway. And I definitely hope that the individuals who have been loud and um, bolsterous about um, this needing to be a thing, eventually we do see it for feel wide change um, because it is important. And I don't even think um, sometimes that we don't even consider how um, culture is showing up in just a very um, simple way. Like the way that you say hello to someone, I mean, that is can make or break your relationship um, with an individual. So, you know, it's, I think we, um, I can't wait, I should say for the day that we are having field wide conversation and requirements set forth about culture and, and diversity and equity. I don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> so, well, I was, I was wondering, see what tends to happen is I talk too much and then Joe just kind of sits there. So I usually have to say, Joe, do you have anything to add? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Perfect. Joe, do you have anything to add? <laughs> because the reason why is because Megan, usually the things that she said, is just like a, absolute like dumb you know but, how do you uh, follow up with that exactly <laughs> yeah how do you follow up with that megan that's perfect um i think it like everyone has been saying like it has to start small it has to start with um individuals that are working together and create a movement within the field to, and have their voice be heard that we need to do better as a field with social justice. Um, once we establish like a small, like a small group of people that are working towards um, reform, then I think that's when um, us as a field, we're ready to go ahead and implement like our, our own code of social justice or our own movement as a field. I think if we're not ready individually, I mean, individually, then there's no way for our field to proceed and um, grow. Yeah, I've been reading a lot on. Um, I'm taking a class in like experimental behavior analysis, and I don't understand most of it. But <laughs> one thing I have been reading on is social discounting. So taken from like the discounting, delay discounting, probably uh, discounting all of that, but social discounting and how people value things of people that are closer to them. So if something, um, is impacting somebody in your family or a close friend or something like that, then that is more meaningful to you. Um, but then I was, you know, I can think in, in my life too, it's like, that doesn't, that's not always true. You yeah. know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. so it's, I, I don't know. I, I struggle with that back and forth because we, we have data that does show that, but then I can think of, a multitude of ways in which it, it doesn't and that's not always absolute and so um i don't know i think it's just figuring out ways we're talking about like interventions or things that we can do and it's um and it's starting movements or um like you said in the confessions group um like kindness and compassion like this this is not a place where you can say anything we delete it you get kicked out whatever like this is it's their their expectations for how um, you know, to the degree that we can regulate that it's hard, but it's like, it's almost like whether it's companies or schools or whatever need to start having these expectations, um, where that is, that is what's valued among them. Yep. It's definitely changed my behavior because my, I was a debater. I, maybe it's automatically reinforcing at some level to mm -hmm. argue about things. Um, but when I read, especially online, when you don't have facial expressions and tone and that kind of thing, it's so easy to just be like, well, da -da -da -da. <laughs> you know, I'm like, let me tell you how I'm right. Um, and it, you know, being in the confessions group has really helped me like take a step back and like read deeper and try, you know, do more perspective taking and really put thought into, and there's a lot of times I just keep scrolling because I'm like, I can't, I can't think of a response that would be appropriate right now. <laughs> but sometimes um, you don't have to respond. Denisha, Denisha said that in our Thanksgiving episode is like, you can opt out of an argument. You know, yeah. you don't have to engage in that. You can, and it is the simple, like it's a finger swipe. Like you can keep <laughs> scrolling on something. Um, but I think that that's part of it is like, is choosing to listen rather than to, to respond a lot of times. And, and whether it's in like service models that we have and how we're, you know, you, you talk about the misconception of behavior analysts um, being like robots. Um, oftentimes, you know, we go in and that's what we hear is the feedback we're getting is that we're just telling people what they need to do instead of listening to them and working together. Right. So. Yeah. 
And you would think, I mean, obviously on the task list, it talks in the ethics code, there's discussion about like collaboration and training and whatnot, but there's nothing, nothing, nothing that's super clear about how you do that in a way that's productive and effective and brings in, you know, any of the listening components. Now I <laughs> will say I, I redid our eight hour supervision training for um, the BACB 2.0 and they did have on the new task for that, the task list for that or content, whatever they call it. Um, it they do have some stuff in there about making sure that as a supervisor, you understand various like listener and speaker uh, behavior. And I was really surprised because some of the things were things that a lot of behavior analysts would read and be like, that's not behavioral. Um, <laughs> so that was a good step forward. It does show that progress is being made. But still, for me, reading the um, statements of, you know, this is something you need to cover in your eight hour supervision training, there's a million different directions I could have gone with that. And I took the time to look outside of the field and find things that had a behavior analytic lens, you know, and it's definitely was very, it was like observable and measurable behaviors. You know, what does it look like when you're actively engaged versus when you're not um, and how to be like more present and that kind of thing. And so I found those types of things and included that for our training, but that was how I did it. There's nothing in there that says, you know, how you would, you know, incorporate that. So, um, but it is, you know, a big step forward that even to include having good listener skills <laughs> would be in there. So, Yeah, that actually leads into one of the other questions that we had for you all as far as like, or just topic of conversation, just around the requirements that are currently in place for behavior analysts to operate within like cultural awareness, or, you know, we use the term cultural humility, oftentimes taking like a learner perspective from that, you know, like, Yes, now it's in the supervisor training where then in order to be a supervisor, you're supposed to to be able to focus on that. But it I don't know. It's like, how do we make sure that's happening? You know, <laughs> so it's like, what are the requirements? Right. <laughs> or and lack then, thereof. <laughs> go ahead, Joe. And then it's almost like, how do you go about uh, training people who are in the field to um, to be able to do that with fidelity in the field as well. Like, how do you do that? I don't know. I think we've got technology built that we can do that, whether it's behavior skills training and multiple exemplars and things like that. Like I bought a book, it's about counseling. It's called Cultural Humility and it's about counseling. And throughout the whole book, it has conversations of like, and it's counselor uh, client kind of things, but just conversations and then how the counselor can miss certain things that are important versus mm -hmm. um, then how they would pick up on certain things or orient themselves or um, listening instead of just breezing over and, you know, and, and, and so I think there are things that we can do. It's just right now, it just seems so, it doesn't seem scientific in that way. And I, there's gotta be a way that we can make it that, I don't know, Denisha, from your like mental health background, like, is there anything in terms of like training that we can give where it's mastery of skills for stuff like that? Uh, it's hard because one, you know, talking about this whole competency type of thing, it's like, we're not going to reach this place of just all knowing. Um, I think being able to utilize um, the one we talked about, like listening skills, but just being aware, like um, and, util and using that awareness to notice um things are different between another person. I don't know if there's, and I haven't sat down and thought about this, but I don't know if there's a way for me to say, this is how we objectively teach this skill. Um, but I definitely think it takes practice and multiple exemplars and knowing one, there's going to be contextual differences. It doesn't matter how much that I teach you about this specific thing. There are definitely going to be differences depending on who you speak to. So um, I think if there's there might just need to be just, um, I guess, in terms of counseling, just like an overall mastery and understanding of those differences. Um, and even know that because counselor, counselors and social workers have been studying this for so long, they still don't get it all the way right. So can you imagine like having textbooks on top of textbooks talking about culture diversity and they still don't get it correctly? I mean, 
And then we don't have a point. We have no textbook on it. We have no training on it. Imagine everything that we're missing. I think we at least can get to a point where it's just like a general understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether it's just like, I'm trying to, so like you mentioned earlier, Aaron, about um, just knowing that for one culture, it could be um, the least restrictive. And in another, it could be this, like, there you go. Like that is something that we should know because even in, talking about terms of acceptability of the programs we write, something is going to be acceptable for this client versus another. And that might have to deal with their culture. We're talking about collaboration. Another thing with that is if I am coming in um, as an authority figure, me being a behavior analyst and knowing that I know so much about behavior and you know what they say about us sometimes about being the know-it-alls. If I go in there um, with a specific family and they're just very agreeable and they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Great. And then you're like, wait, they aren't actually doing <laughs> any of the homework that I set out for them. <laughs> What's going on? It's like, oh, this may have something to do with culture as well, because they're not going to tell you no in your face. And so it's like some of these things, of course, you're like, oh, I have to assess for motivation. That that would be like behavior analytic. How can I like bridge the gap? But if you're going to miss what's important to them and, you know, I don't know if that fully helps you even with your modification. Like you have to be able to get on common ground with your um, with your clients. And if you're missing a part of who they are, like, how easy is that going to be? So anyway, long story short, I think that we can <laughs> eventually get there um, through some type of generalization, but not an overgeneralization. We don't need that. I think starting out simple too, like you were saying, Denisha, about, you know, recognizing that they may say yes to anything or like Aaron was saying about the least restrictive. <laughs> if we could at least get trainees and current behavior analysts to check their bias, like to recognize that they have biases and different histories, um, which is so funny because we all talk about how history, you know, we have to take it on the exam. There's several questions usually I would bet about that, you know, knowing how histories play into current behavior. Um, you can't really understand like reinforcement or punishment without it. But they when for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to come, they, there's like zero training, even in my undergrad training, for psychology, we talked about as a psychologist, if you're providing like talk therapy, you have to make sure that you're not leading the um, the client and that you're not bringing your own baggage into the therapy session. And that was undergrad. Like we weren't even doing, like we weren't doing therapy sessions, but none of that's really discussed in our training, which is interesting as a helping science that we wouldn't have that kind of training. So even just getting that recognition, the number of times I've had to train people on you're there, you know, social validity to help the family. What are their goals? And they can't tell me what the parents' goals are because they've just come in with their assessment and their stuff ready to go. And they're banging their head against the wall because the parent won't do any of it. And it's like, that's not the no, that's not how this works. This isn't how we do that. So even those like small things, I think when I was listening to the first podcast episode that was running through my mind a lot of like, we have whether we want to recognize it or not, it's going to be a little bit tricky to maybe talk about on a podcast like this, but there are people practicing in our field right now who do not even treat their clients humanely, who you know do not even recognize that they need to be collaborative with the families that they're serving. And those are kind of like, whether you understand social justice or not, that's just like good practice as a behavior analyst. So if we don't even have that happening all the time, are we like, when is the next step? And I'm not necessarily saying it has to be a next step, but I feel like as a prerequisite skill, you have to value humans and their perspectives <laughs> before you can, you know, keep continue forward with understanding like equity and justice and diversity and all those kinds of things. So that was a long winded uh, thing. There's so much I have to say about this. I'll just be quiet now. <laughs> That's a good point though, as far as, you know, like, we're here and there's a part of the field there are people that are practicing that are still like way back here yeah you know like um, 20 or 30 years ago <laughs> you know it's interesting just based on whether it's conversations that are happening online or articles that have come out um and just even like blog articles the conversation around like gift giving or accepting food and water 
has become this massive conversation now. And I feel like just having attention drawn to that now has put into perspective for some people that, oh, this might be why they're offering food. And this is why it's okay for me to accept that. So just highlighting that and having it be this, it's been a huge topic of conversation. And now when I bring it up in classes that I teach, they're like, yes, but that could be okay in their culture. And I'm like, great. Can we now expand? Like, let's generalize that thought process to everything else that we do. (laughs) It's just not quite there yet. So, but I think like highlighting things like that, that happen to people frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I've just, I've seen a change with that specifically. Yeah, I think so. It's so funny because I I do mention this part in like my presentations, but we have these, you know, words on a page, these rules that have been set. And so we hear don't accept gifts. Um, There was never ever any context given to that by the BACB, right? Just do not accept gifts. It didn't tell you an amount. It didn't tell you if water was considered a gift. But then we had people that um, read it their own selves and said, oh, don't accept the water, don't accept the cookie. Um, And so we still have people in the field that, you know, listen to that. And they're just like, no, never okay, never okay. And then you have others that are like, but culture or, but I'm thirsty. It's a hot day outside. (laughs) Um, But I think that just, you know, continues to drive the point home that we've set this standard whatever it is, whatever ethical code you want to say, it has to be taught in some type of way. Like we have to be able to break it down and get on one accord Um, as uh, clinicians and just uh, other behavior analysts in the field. Like we have to be able to know when I say gift, this is what (laughs) this means. Like you can't give me a car, right? (laughs) But sure, I'll take your tea. Thank you so much. Yeah. Operational definition. Hmm. Who would have thought that we would need one of those? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I was telling my students the other day, I said, if somebody gives you something or offers you something and you now feel obligated or if you would feel bad coming back the next day and having to discontinue services or tell them you're leaving for if, if there's something where then you start to like, that's a sign that something is is off for you, at least it's just information. It's not to say that something's gone wrong, but it's just like sit with that and, and it's it's a signal like pay attention to that, you know? But if you're thirsty, <laughs> you want some water or coffee or, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. I've never. Yeah. I mean, like even back thinking about grad school um, and when I went back from my ABA coursework, we had a long discussion over a couple, a couple classes on, you know, whether or not we take our water or not. And we had some hot um discussions about that um but i mean like at the same time like if it's hot outside and you are running around with your client and you come back inside and you're hot hot do you take that water or not doesn't it seem so trivial that we're sitting here talking about water like and that's, yeah. that's the point that I get to. It's all, all of the things that could be and it will and you, but to hear you say joe that you all had like hours of course work like and you and i have had other podcast episodes where you're like oh yeah we didn't talk about that and it's like a very important thing in our field that you should have learned yeah. about it's like okay <laughs> priorities yeah they talked about the water i didn't accept water for years i would just like to say that yeah. <laughs> um yeah it's it's interesting. The BACB had even put out a report, you know, years ago said, look, we're not talking about water, but yet we still have this rule <laughs> in our heads. Um, and so even what you were saying, Aaron, about like, if something's telling you that you have to discontinue services, I think that's even interesting because this could just, I mean, it's just mediated off your rule governed behavior, it could still be the water is telling you like, oh man, I'm such a sucky behavior analyst. Like I broke the rules. The BACB is going to be after me. (laughs) The parent knows. (laughs) Um, I've had thoughts like that before. Like, oh, this parent is asking me, uh, do I want water? Now I literally accepted water when I was like choking on air. (laughs) Like one day and I was like, I have to do it, please, (laughs) please water. And I was like, oh, they're going to tell on me. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm glad you accepted it and you're still yeah. here to, to talk to us today. <laughs> oh gosh. So, so when we think about everything that we've been talking about, like, what are, what are some of the barriers that we have? Like, 
why why are we not moving for i know we talked about like training right or education right like i don't know are there any are there any other barriers that that we have ourselves getting in our own way to um actually approach and broach this topic um being guided by our learning histories right we all have some type some form of biases against other folks um some of us have specific biases related to the topic in general. Like the topic in general is immediately aversive. Don't want to talk about it. Don't need to talk about it. So I definitely think um, one of our barriers in this field is us. Um, yeah. It has to be a priority in some type of way. So behavior analysts, we need to move out the way and <laughs> allow the rest of the world to kind of inform what we do in practice. It's a perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also the big barrier kind of brought up at the beginning is it's again the opposite a lot of the times it's not only do we want to like motivate it's not a neutral stimulus it's or a neutral thing it's often seen as unnecessary we're scientists we're objective data collectors um even when you were talking Aaron about listening you know and and teaching people how to listen better uh, how much were you focused when you did your coursework? Did you receive training on how to observe behavior well and take data on behavior happening before your eyes versus how to listen and pull from what people are telling you the details out? You know, it's always focused on what you can see with your eyes because verbal behavior may be erroneous and, you know, may not be accurate and that kind of thing and verbal report, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's a big issue too, is looking at, you know, what the science values. And right now I would say at least half of the field, um, it's still a very much of the, like in the laboratory, very science, we're an applied field that's in our name, <laughs> but most people, especially if they come from the university setting and that kind of thing, and they're not actually out boots on the ground working with whatever populations, they don't see these things and you have that still that very cold objective data 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 so any talk about these types of things it's like you know that's unnecessary we don't even need to broach those conversations mm -hmm. i Can remember about, oh go ahead Aaron. no real <laughs> fast i remember coming out of uh, out of grad school uh, like coursework and and having this mindset of like okay i know emotions exist but i can't talk about that i'm like <laughs> this kid is not mad. I can't talk about that. I can't address that. And it's like my whole mindset and all of that has just, it, I don't know, it's, it's switched, you know, and, and uh, there's not a big enough conversation around, um, you know, if we've got a client that's dealing with something, just simply validating their feelings, mm -hmm. you can still have your intervention in place and all of that, but just simply say, look, I know this sucks, you know, but here's what, you know, what, whatever that is. And, and, and I think, we take things to such extremes. If you were to ask, um, you know, even students or even like some behavior analysts, like what planned ignoring is, they're going to be like, just don't, don't look at them. Don't talk to them. Nothing. And I'm like, but, but, but differential reinforcement. What, what about that? Like you can, we can, <laughs> we can have re like oh, oh, embedded reinforcement that is so rich in their environment, but should, there's one thing you're going to like, you know, put on extinction, so to speak. And, and, you know, and, and so I think it's just, there's such absolutes when it comes to some of the stuff that um, I think that that extends into everything, whether it's the ethics code and we have now really rigid rules around um, how we view things or how we approach situations. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, I think just continued education going to stuff like the do better, like webinars are just this excellent source of free information right it's just time and attention that's all it takes you know um so yeah yeah the planned ignoring is something that um i thought about when i was listening to your first episode too like those types of procedures if we still have behavior analysts doing that not recognizing emotions not teaching young children who are you know three to five or even older adults who just don't developmentally have not learned those skills if they are not equipped to teach their own clients how to do those minor things, how are we going to expect like anything bigger than that? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Definitely. Yeah. Anisha, you were there, say there okay as a human to ignore that, right? Like to just sit right. there while a kid is like 
45 minutes doing who knows what. And you're, you're like perfectly fine with that. Or maybe you're struggling with it, but you're still like, I have to do this. Obedience. And there's a lot of work to right. be done. <laughs> yeah. It goes back to that humanity piece that you were saying, you know? Yep. Sorry, Denisha, I keep uh, cutting you off. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I actually I was going to, you know, this is good because you all stayed on topic and I was about to segue. So. <laughs> <laughs> segue away. Um, good. I was going to ask, though, about um, service models. Like, are there any ways that you see analysts using social justice principles in their actual service models, whether it is, you know, a consultant doing their own thing or under an organization's auspices? Like, how do you see this happening? So do you mean if, for example, uh, somebody was providing, you know, in-home ABA intervention or working in a school like Joe does, that kind of thing? Or do you mean like people creating companies to help with activism outside of what our typical, what we would picture for a behavior analyst to do? I don't know if that second one exists, but um, yeah. Well, it doesn't currently. I was that's why I was like, "Is it a teacher or?" No, but definitely um, what you were saying about just working wherever you work, whether it's in school, homes. How does how do the principles? You know, we're talking about equity. We're talking about um, recognizing our privileges and understanding oppression. Like, how does that show up in our applied work? And it could be from a practitioner or an organizational standpoint. When I what I meant by that are the people that are starting their own companies, but still are doing um, clinical work. Yeah, I think you know it's to be honest, and that's one of the things that's funny because you know I had my own company for a while, and um, even I'm a really really big into women's rights and like sexual harassment and the Times Up movement and all of that kind of stuff. And when some things happened a few years ago in our field, I realized like, we don't even have a, we've never even done training with our supervisors. Like this is an area I'm very passionate about and we don't even have anything on this. And I would think, you know, obviously the same is for social justice and the equity. I think equity, generally speaking, for most behavior analysts, they may not know that that's what they're talking about and they may not fully be there, but with how if you're do, truly developing individualized interventions and creating environments for your learner to be the most successful at some level, you are incorporating that for the client. That doesn't necessarily mean for the staff that are working with you, um, the families that you're serving. And, you know, I, in the, um, I can't remember if it was the episode with Dr. Gould, but where you were talking about what equity means and, you know, it might be like, there's certain families that have better different resources than other families. And like, do companies take that into account when figuring out how to provide the most effective services? I don't think if they do, it's usually in the opposite direction. <laughs> Unfortunately, right now, it's very, I think um, Beverly Kirby was the only one I've met so far that's, that said, like, I set out to you know, try to work with these specific populations that, you know, I wouldn't have funding and it would be a struggle, but I would figure it out kind of thing. I haven't met anyone that's like, maybe there are people that doesn't mean they don't exist, but yes, you, <laughs> I mean, outside of what we're talking about. But, um, so I think that those are the types of things too, in the work that you're doing, Denisha and Aaron and other people that are working in this realm, you know, just almost like cold calling companies and saying like, Hey, can I provide you with some free information? Cause I think a lot of companies, if they heard the conversations and they have those values would be like, Oh my God, they'd same as me. Oh my gosh. I can't believe we're not focusing on this and we haven't made this apart, but they don't know. They either don't know that they don't know, or they might know, but they don't have the resources. Like they don't have their own knowledge and expertise on it to incorporate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and I like how you mentioned just like everyone, essentially, from the staff to the people that you serve. Um, and I do th I feel like, you know, over the years that I've been in this uh, field, I can't say that I've worked for any company that has uh, really, you know, made that a priority. Um, you know, I've talked about um, in my past happened to be like the person in the room, like, no, that's you know, that's not okay. Um, but I think, you know, as if you, from an organizational standpoint, like even thinking about how you do your assessments, like what are, what types of things are you asking? Um, are you recognizing cultural variables when you're, 
you know, speaking to the parents I mentioned earlier about the authority figure type thing. Um, what's the equity like in your hiring practices? And, you know, Evelyn had discussed this too about you can hire as many people as you want, but who are you promoting? Who are you actually spending time on? Um, how are you addressing socioeconomic issues with the families that you serve and also your staff? If, you know, if you're underpaying them and they can barely put gas in their tank to go see your clients, like how does that really work for them? And so, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of areas for us to bring social justice principles into our work. Um, it's just like you said, um, knowing knowing what they are and knowing how to do better and listening to folks who might um, have a little bit of knowledge in that area. I think about when I did in-home work, um, it was scheduling and scheduling was always an issue, but we had parents that were working two to three jobs just to make ends meet. And we were give it was Medicaid services. So the service was free to them, but it was, um, if they couldn't meet this many hours and in this way, um, then, then they couldn't be a part of services or something like that. So I remember thinking, um, that it's, that it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. Like that's what kept showing yeah. up for me. It was like, this is not fair. Um, you know, or even when I was a school teacher, Joe, I don't know how cultural strategies that you have. And then also the outside is important to what is happening on the inside. So you can scroll to the next one. So once again, um, how do we handle this? How do we handle this in the workplace? And I think it's important for us to handle this. And I think that the selfish way, not the selfish, but like, if we need to individualize it, we can also just understand that if we don't fight when it's someone else, it'll eventually be us and we'll be looking around like, who's fighting for me, right? So it's, it's either you fight now before it gets to you or you don't. And then when it gets to you, there's no one left to fight with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so um, Angela Walk, I mean, not Angela. <laughs> Alice Walker regarded Angela Davis as a voice that inspired new voices and scholars. Um, but she also talked about how Angela Davis inspired activists. And so I kind of see you as someone who could do that, Bria, and which is another oh reason gosh. why I won. <laughs> Don't say that. That's the best compliment. <laughs> uh, I know, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. But um, can you can you give us some inspiration right now? Um, hopefully you can let us know. Um, how, like, what are some things that um, you actually did to determine what was important to you? Like, did you do it? Did you have to like journal anything? Um, or was it just like an immediate draw? Or you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying.